Dr. Yuri Rogel is Director of Research at the Grantham Institute at Imperial College and also at the International Institute for Applied Systems Analysis. He studies how societies transform towards more sustainable futures, connecting earth sciences to policy. He publishes on one and a half degrees Celsius pathways, UN climate agreements, carbon budgets, and net zero targets. He is a long-serving author on authoritative science assessment reports of the UN Environment Program and Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. Yuri Rogel, welcome to the One Planet podcast. Thank you for having me. Your work has had exceptional impact on international climate policy, and you've really been behind the scenes. Could you briefly explain what you do at uh, the Grantham Institute and and other organizations, because you've really had a seat at the table and really helping change our perspective and, and, and form policy? Yeah, so currently I'm the Director of Research at the Grantham Institute at Imperial College in London, and I'm also a Senior Research Scholar at the International Institute for Applied Systems Analysis, which is an international research institute close to Vienna in Austria. And in my research, I basically try to connect what we know about our planet to what needs to happen in policy. And so that is a very broad area, but that directly brings me to the kind of questions that I'm trying to to answer and that are linked to climate change and environmental or sustainability problems. And over the past years, I've mainly worked on, on climate change. That's the area where I started. And one of the key topics I work on there is to inform the international climate negotiations about how we can uh, transform or transition our society towards a low carbon future, and particularly one that limits warming to uh, as low levels as possible, including 1.5 degrees of global warming. I'm wondering how you prioritize the areas that you focus on. As you say, it's broad and we have to sometimes make decisions on to, you know, what is the most urgent issue? I know you've helped us, you know, reframe our, our point of view and whether we can uh, reach certain levels and time periods. So how have you prioritized your work? A key part of how I go about doing my research is being involved in policy discussions, policy conversations, and also by following the international climate negotiations very closely. Actually, I started my research career as a part of as part of the presidency of the international climate negotiations in 2009. And also after that, I then remained a advisor to a uh, country delegations in the international negotiations, particularly uh, small island development states or least developed countries. And that really helped me to kind of get a sense of what what the real questions are that they are struggling with, what what are the key research needs that they do, which questions do they need answers to. And that then also helped me prioritize, knowing what is being discussed in the international climate negotiations, knowing for which aspects there is no information available. For example, before the Paris Agreement was agreed in 2015, there were over 100 countries that were calling for a more stringent limit. So instead of limiting warming to 2 degrees, they were calling to limit warming to 1.5. However, when looking at the literature and the scientific literature, there was no research being done on pathways that were 
reducing emissions sufficiently deeply to limit warming to 1.5. And so that, for example, was one of the key gaps in knowledge that, that I identified. And then in, in the years um, before the Paris Agreement, I was one of the only ones to publish on that topic in response to this gap in knowledge. And what are your feelings now? I mean, since Paris and since we've just come out of COP26, you know, about feasibility, what's been achieved or what can be achieved? I think over the past couple of years, we have seen a really interesting evolution and really interesting shift, uh, a societal shift. I think until the the Paris uh, summit, the COP21 in Paris, it was almost like the UN and the UN Forum was leading the world in setting ambitious climate targets that were way ahead of where the societal conversation was. In the, in the past five years, I have the feeling this has shifted quite a bit, with now both civil societies, youth movements, but also equally business and even industry calling for targets that are even more stringent that, than the targets that are being discussed in, in the international climate negotiations. So really looking at the most ambitious end of limiting warming to 1.5. And why is that important? That is because whether we consider something to be feasible or not depends on a, on a, on a series of things. There are things that we as scientists, we can answer confidently ourselves based on evidence. For example, whether within the laws of thermodynamics, physics, and, and, and chemistry, we can actually limit warming to 1.5 degrees, whether we have the technologies to do so, whether um, it is econo economically possible to, uh, to limit warming to those low levels. And there we can, with, with our scientific expertise, we can confidently say that it, it might be possible. But there are other dimensions that make things feasible or possible that we as scientists do not affect and which lie in society. For example, question whether our political institutions are able to, to generate the change that is necessary or where, whether society is willing to take up and, ch and change its behaviors to the, the degree that is necessary to limit warming to 1.5. And there, it is these latest developments, or in, it, it are these two latest dimensions, so the institutional and societal feasibility, where I think the evolution in the, in the past couple of years is particularly reassuring. So we see society being much more active, much more aware of the climate change problem, and also much more vocal about doing something about it. And that is ultimately essential to finding solutions uh, that work for each community and each society. You've spoken about before, I, I, before it was um, that society has made huge sacrifices. We are, obviously have to respect that. But I think that there is this change and you would probably have a better feeling of it, that they, they really understand it's not a sacrifice, it's an intelligent decision. And it's really just how we ha have to change and evolve and adapt. Absolutely. First of all, society becomes more and more aware that dealing with climate change is not a, there is no other choice. We need to deal with it. Limiting climate change to low levels is actually not a sacrifice, but it's rather a desirable future. It's something that will bring welfare and well-being to our um, societies in our community. Of course, the transition is always difficult and there are winners and losers, but such transitions, such, such changes from the current status quo can be designed in a way to bring everybody along. 
to also to, for example, shield poor and vulnerable populations of being negatively impacted by higher, higher prices or higher energy prices or higher food prices. One can make, one can make policies that ensure that these communities are indeed not left behind. Exactly. And as you say, it is, it's a question of design and engineering. What promising solutions or progress structurally or in terms of new technologies are you most hopeful about and interested in seeing us pursue as a society? Yeah, so the interesting and the challenging part of this transformation, this low carbon transformation, is that no, no sector is really off the hook. So we really need to think about technologies and, and, and solutions in, in all aspects of our lives. And I think the most exciting ones are those that do not just deliver a benefit for the climate, but deliver many other benefits for other aspects in or, or other aspects that we as a society care about. And these additional benefits can be small or really essential or central to, to the solution itself. One example is the delivery of clean power. In many areas, particularly poor and, and, and isolated areas, providing clean energy, the cheapest way today is through solar, solar photovoltaics. Not only is that the environmentally most friendly way of producing energy, it is also the, the, the cleanest in terms of air pollution and other and and, and, and other sustainability aspects. In many places, poor populations are still using traditional biomass, which not only is extreme, extremely bad for indoor air pollution and for public health, particularly of women and children, but on top of that also leads to forest degradation and deforestation in, in several areas. Uh, another example is, is, of course, just switching between combustion engines and electric vehicles in cities, where also there we, we have a reduction in air pollution and, and, and thus an improvement in, in air quality and, and benefits to public health. But equally, we, we see a reduction in noise, which is often a, an aspect that we don't consider so often. And, and, other, and, and, and a last example might be the, the use of new agricultural practices, where, for example, approaches like agroforestry can can result in increased yields in, in practices that are more resilient to climate impacts and climate disturbance, while at the same time also taking up carbon from the atmosphere and contributing to a low carbon uh, future. I, th I feel like globally there is this great will to, to make changes and we're often frustrated at the speed of those changes, which is, I imagine, so difficult when you have huge infrastructures. What have you learned in terms of behind the scenes, that process? Because you've recently also been awarded the Early Career Scientist Award and particularly for your exceptional contribution to science and international scientific collaboration. So what have you learned about this? This process and, and how can we be more part of this uh, decision making or how can we give a greater momentum to the process? The international process of climate policies is extremely complex and at the one hand that is a challenge, on the other hand that is an opportunity because it means that there are a variety of ways in which one can get involved in that process. I think and there are different roles to be played here. 
as a scientist and someone who tries to inform the process, I think one of the most important things to do is to listen and not to listen to the voices that you're close to. Obviously, I'm a white male from a developed country. So if I would only be listening to people that look the same and that live in the same um, conditions as, as I do and, and live the same lives, then I would have never been looking into key questions of pathways that limit warming to 1.5, questions of net zero targets, and so on. But it is by talking to people with experiences that are entirely different from, from ours, from people whose livelihoods, whose cultures, whose communities are literally threatened by climate change, that have a, and who therefore have a totally different perspective on what is needed, and, and on what um, the solution must be, not just can be, without a solution, their livelihoods and their, and their survival is, is threatened. It is through conversations with, with these kind of people that one can really understand where one can provide an input to this process. Yes, and often, as you find uh, in different societies, the relationship with the natural world, it's not even phrased as the natural world, as though it were separate from our world or their world it's really entwined and i feel like there's so much we can learn from indigenous societies and just those who really feel that nature is not separate from them and it's their home that is indeed uh, an important uh, an important aspect and also a, a very difficult uh, or very large challenge particularly to have these voices heard in the fora where the actual decisions are being made for example in the un it are mainly the the member countries of the un that have a voice there and and that are speaking of course there are observer organizations uh, in, including indigenous organizations that are allowed to attend those meetings but they play, play a much more inferior role overall in the entire process. That doesn't mean that, that this thinking and these ideas do not reach the actual conversations or the actual decisions, but still it, it does show the challenge. And I think one of those challenges is not just consider solutions that really commodify nature as being just another resource that we have to deal with, but also consider the inherent value of nature, the inherent value of biodiversity, the inherent value of a healthy planet, irrespective of it, whether it brings economic benefits to uh, human societies. Yes, precisely. We have to also see that profit isn't the only motive and it's wonderful to see these degrowth movements can't be, keep on maxing out on depleting nature and think it will never come back to us. And to help us demystify a little bit about, you know, your work, you've worked on the emissions gap reports, for the United Nations Environment Program, and also you're, I, I believe that you're the youngest member serving on the U, UN Secretary General's Climate Science Advisory Group. Just tell us a little bit of what that is like from the inside and how, um, it, yeah, it's just, it's, a, it's mysterious for us and we'd like to know. So, yeah, since their inception in, in, in 2010, I've been a lead author on the emissions gap reports of the UN Environmental Programme. And these reports, they basically every year we look at where emissions are heading based on current policies, based on what countries have pledged, and then where they should be going to limit warming to 1.5 or 2 degrees to the goals of the Paris Agreement. And then we always see that the current 
pledges and promises are not yet in line, and that is then the gap. And, and so this is a process that is really targeted at informing the international negotiations and, and very directly. I got involved in that actually through my very first job in the climate change area. As I mentioned before, I started in this in, in, in climate change actually in 2009 by joining the team of the United Nations Climate Summit Presidency, which was then led by Denmark uh, and which led to the unfortunately unsuccessful climate summit in Copenhagen, COP15. And there, one of the key aspects, of course, is, is not only of, of those negotiations, is not only to bring countries together to discuss, but also have a certain level of fact-checking going on, whether what countries are proposing, not just in terms of pledges, but also, for example, in terms of market rules or, or other policies, actually make sense, whether there are any loopholes and so on. And, and there is actually quite active community of, of scientists and of analysts that really focus on understanding what these promises of countries actually mean and then basically speak uh, truth to power and, and telling countries and governments how they are, how they are working uh, or how they are doing. And it is really this community that is also brought together in these reports of the UN emissions gap, of the UN UNEP emissions gap. What we do in those reports is we basically synthesize the information that we have available in from the research community and we assess what is robust, what, what are our insights where we are not so sure about to then at the end be able to come forward with kind of a unified voice with those insights that governments can't put aside or, or put or, or ignore and, and as I said before, really be able to speak truth to power. Yes. And I've heard, uh, you know, differing views or different levels of satisfaction with uh, the, the COP conferences. And some say that it's, we have this expectation that it's where we will be in the future, but then others will say, it's just taking a temperature of where we are now. And so maybe this, that kind of activism, the grassroots has to be done elsewhere. It can't just be done at these global conferences. I'm wondering what your views are on Nuclear. So uh, nu nuclear power is an, is an interesting one, but in a sense, it's not so different from <laughs> other solutions. Every solution and every option that we want to implement to limit climate change does not only affect climate change. We, every choice we make, we are not just considering how much carbon dioxide that technology produces. And that is particularly the case with, with nuclear. We know that nuclear over its life cycle produces relative or results in relative little CO2 emissions to the atmosphere, but also nobody really is debating that. The, the question whether, we, whether societies choose to use nuclear or not to limit, to reduce their greenhouse gas emissions is because of other environmental or, or security concerns, which are equally valid and which are equally play a part in uh, how we make decisions. There are other uh, examples of technologies or, or measures uh, that could very well lead to very deep reductions in greenhouse gas emissions, but are also undesirable. One of, one of these is the large-scale deployment of bioenergy. Through bioenergy, we can take up carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. We can even, if we combine it with carbon capture and storage, try and, and remove CO2 from the atmosphere if we, if we then 
sequester it in uh, large-scale underground reservoirs, like depleted oil fields. And so for, for the climate, this might be okay, but the production of, of bioenergy, if done in a, in, in, if, when it doesn't consider other important aspects, can lead to competition with food, competition, competition over land, and, and, and competition on water, but also then reduce, reduce biodiversity when primary forest is being deforested to then start growing monocultures of bioenergy crops. So in the same way, if, if we just look at the carbon, it might look as a, a, a possible solution, but we have the entire sustainable development agenda that we actually care about or that our societies care about. And so these different dimensions need to be taken into account when making those decisions. For nuclear, currently in many cases, it is even not yet the cheapest way of producing energy. So even there, the, the cost tag uh, also plays a role in making those decisions. Yes, I mean, I would very much hesitate to be pro-nuclear. It's, it's only then there are some people who talk about the, the footprint the, of other sustainable energy models that one doesn't, you know, when you put the where do you put the the windmills where you're those are that's habitat for natural habitat for for animals and and so it goes to biodiversity and so i would i want i think everyone wants the magic bullet and we have to we have to measure we have to balance our expectations with what's realistic the idea of getting to net zero is we, we all hope for that. And yet sometimes these targets are vague. You know, as you say, they're loopholes. How can we get to greater clarity so that they're really effective? Great question. Indeed, we, we need to get global carbon dioxide emissions down to net zero just to stop global warming from further increasing. So it's essential that we achieve this. And so it is also really good to see many net zero targets by countries and companies being put forward. The big question now, however, is the quality of these targets. And, and there actually recently we looked into these and, and we saw that many of them are very unclear, intransparent about what they actually cover, what they are trying to achieve, and in particularly also how they would be considered fair and adequate in the context of limiting global warming or, or bringing global emissions down to net zero by mid-century or, or any other date that, one, that, that we would set. In, in this study, we kind of highlighted three main dimensions of, where, of aspects that net zero targets should cover to be, to be considered transparent and robust. And, and we provide, also provide 10 guidelines, but let me just uh, go over the three big dimensions that need to be covered. The first is really a question of scope. The, the target needs to be very clear about which climate target it tries to achieve, which greenhouse gases it covers, or only carbon dioxide or all other, other greenhouse gases, but then also whether it, how much it expects contributions of emissions reductions versus offsets or carbon dioxide removal because there is a because we understand from the scientific evidence that any transformation to net zero involves very deep and steep reductions in emissions combined with limited amounts of carbon dioxide removal and if everybody or if if all targets only consider 
carbon dioxide or greenhouse gas emissions not to reduce too much, but instead just trying to scale up carbon dioxide removal, we won't be getting there as, um, as, as a global society. The second dimension next to scope is then to look at adequacy and fairness. Again, we need to get to global net zero, for example, by 2050, if for limiting warming to 1.5. Um, reaching this globally around 2050 doesn't mean that everybody needs to be there at the same time. Some countries have more resources or are, have, are in a better position to reduce their emissions than others. And, and this can be either because of their development status. Developing countries have many, many times less access to finance and, and, and the resources necessary to make the transformation than developed countries. But it can also be just linked to actual natural resources that a country has. A country that has lots of land, lots of forest and lots of hydropower potential, for them it's quite easy to get to net zero. A country that has limited solar resources, is landlocked and has limited access to hydropower or to, or to bioenergy ha has a much harder time to get to net zero. So there it is clear that some countries that are in a position to limit their emissions to net zero should actually consider going beyond and going net negative so that other countries with, with, with deep challenges, either tec technical, technological or de development challenges, have more time to make the necessary transformation to, to net zero, which they might achieve slightly later. And then finally, uh, the, the final, the third dimension that needs to be covered. So we had scope, then we had fairness and, and adequacy. The last is that any of these net zero targets also need a plan and a key, uh, a key roadmap for how they will be achieved. Otherwise, they are just promises. They are just kind of labels that are put out there for many decades in the future. But without that plan, we have very little confidence that they will ever be achieved. My name is Trio Alsid and I am in my final year at the University of Washington in the Community Environment and Planning Program. I'm a Sustainable Cities and Communities Collaborator with the Creative Process and the One Planet Podcast. As I listen to Dr. Yuri Rogel and his passion for this subject, I am reminded of how crucial an informed and action-based narrative is for mitigating the climate crisis and working to draw attention to the urgency of this catastrophe. In his previous work, Rogo publishes on the effectiveness of the climate agreements and the importance of following through on these goals set. Despite governments around the world collaborating on this issue, the devastating repercussions of our actions are being seen around the world today. The decline in agricultural productivity leads to the increase in prices, leaving lower income populations more vulnerable. Populations that live along coasts are being relocated as the sea level continues to rise. Indigenous communities located around the Arctic Circle, as well as the ray of life, are being threatened by the melting of the polar ice caps. Many of these indigenous people groups rely on shorefast ice for fishing, hunting, and traveling. The anthropogenic climate crisis also threatens the health and safety of the global community. As the degree of warming increases and expands northward, the tolerant zones for pests carrying infectious diseases expands, and deadly infections strike unprepared and vulnerable populations. Work like Rogel's is imperative to expanding the discourse on the climate crisis and evaluating the proposals for how to mitigate this issue through international cooperations and action plans that are enforced and executed with purpose. 
There is potential to curb the consequences of this climate crisis. Immediate and universal actions are mandatory for protecting our planet and its people. I know that really clarifies a lot because so often in these discussions about climate, it's, you know, it's just quite vague or it's just like a number and we don't have that in context. And speaking on that personalized element, it's not just a question of climate. We're seeing climate refugees. We have been for a while or climate immigrants. And, and, you know, our two countries where we reside at the moment are currently uh, uh, dealing with this um, in terms of refugees. Um, It's not always directly related to climate, but we know that conflicts do arise over resources. And so, uh, you know, what can we do to to prevent that? Yeah, there Two important ways to 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 address this, and they, they very much directly link to addressing the problem at heart. So we know that climate change is is what we call a risk or a threat amplifier for many of those for many conflicts or, or for for or for socioeconomic hardship. And so first and foremost, we need to make sure that we invest enough in adaptation. To, to climate change, adaptation to the climatic conditions and the extreme events that we already are experiencing today. So we have seen just in the most developed regions of this world, we have seen in the US and Canada, we have seen in, in, in Europe. So in the US and Canada, it was with heat waves, extreme heat. In Europe, it was with, with heavy precipitation. And we could see that in those, in those most developed regions of the world, we are barely, uh, if at all, prepared and adapted to the changes that are happening today and that we are experiencing today. So you, you can imagine how, how developing countries, how the situation is in developing countries where infrastructure is less developed, where capacity to rapidly um, mobilize finance to respond to, to extreme events and, and, and to crisis is very limited. Uh, so there it, it is even more pressing to really invest in uh, adaptation today. But adaptation won't be enough. The, the, the literature and, 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 and the scientific evidence also shows that there are clear limits to adaptation. First of all, there are limits to how fast we can implement adaptation. It, it's easy to imagine that even if we would have an unlimited amount of money, countries with, with challenging institutional situations, such for example, like Central Africa or the Democratic Republic of Congo, won't be perfectly adapted to climate change next year if we just put uh, unlimited amount of money in them. This is a long-term process that needs to, that, that will take decades to materialize. And so there are limits to what we can adapt, be adapted to in over the next couple of decades. But even then, uh, there are limits to what we can adapt to at all, even in the most perfect of situations. And therefore it is important to also limit warming to as low levels as possible. And there, and also there, we need to take into account and, and, and think of how this affects vulnerable populations. We know that this transformation to a low carbon future can provide lots of opportunities. And we know that lots of conflicts are exactly there because economic opportunities are lacking or a, a, a clear future for, for, for key populations is lacking. And so this, this transformation can also be used as a catalyst to provide these this desirable futures for, 
for, for local populations to, to provide jobs, to provide security and to provide a, a world where people are resilient against the climate change that we will still be experiencing over the course of this century. Yes, and uh, thank you for all that you do. Uh, and also as a researcher, I've, I've read research that said that politicians um, often or can use, you, you'll know better, scientific research as information, as a way of backing some already made political decisions and not as a kernel for developing them. I'm wondering what your experience might be of that. Yeah, it's, it's, it's an aspect that has even become more obvious as in the context of the coronavirus pandemic. It is very important to understand the role of science compared to the role of decision makers and politics. So science provides information, they can inform decisions, but decisions are ultimately always made by politicians. Science doesn't decide what, what needs to be done. At best, science can tell you a what if or, or answer what if questions. For example, science provides very strong evidence that impacts of climate change increase which, with every increment of global warming. Every tenth of a degree that we're warming, risks will be increasing. We also, science also clearly establishes that those risks increase disproportionately between 1.5 and 2 degrees. And, and as a person, as a citizen, I would rather see warming to be limited to as low levels as possible. But science in itself doesn't set the target. It is society that, that takes into account that evidence, that takes into account the, the risks that might or that will, that will be caused by climate change, that then needs to decide what is, um, what is the most desirable uh, way, way forward. Uh, in the same way, we, decisions need to be made about the solutions, and we spoke about this earlier. There, there is one, one clear thing where science can, can provide clear answers, and that is if a certain target is set, for example, uh, the Paris Agreement says that we want to limit warming well below 2 degrees and, and pursue to limit it to 1.5. Science can tell us what the, the geophysical requirements are. To, to stay that. And for example, we can calculate a, a carbon budget which in which we need to keep our global greenhouse gas emissions or our global carbon dioxide emissions for a limiting warming to those levels. When we then want to again trans, translate these carbon budgets to changes in our societies, how we are going to change the way we produce energy, how we are going to change the way we, we provide mobility and we provide the food for, for our populations, then uh, science, again, informs policy, but uh, decisions need to be made by policymakers that are ultimately responsible and, and, and need, to, yeah, need to respond to the, the needs and the, and the priorities of their populations or of the people they represent. And you mentioned COVID there, and you have written about this, you know, in terms of also climate change and emissions. So what were your observations or what did you feel that tells us about our process and our, our approach? We studied the interaction between COVID and, and, and climate change questions from, from a few different angles. In, in one study, we looked at what the COVID lockdowns meant for global emissions. And we saw that at, at the height of the, of the lockdowns, we had a global reduction of about 10% or a reduction of about 10% in global emissions. That, that is, of course, significant, but it also teaches us a few things about how we can deal with climate change and how we 
and and where solutions are and where they are not. If 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 we think back about the lockdowns, they involved basically a standstill of uh, society in many countries. Almost no cars were were driving, no airplanes were flying. Lots of industry was even working at at much lower intensities than than they're used to. And despite all that, which and despite all these massive changes in our behaviors and in our uh, daily lives, despite all that, emissions only reduced by 10%. And we know that emissions need to go to net zero. So that also really shows that simple small behavioral changes or even large behavioral changes are not the end solution of, of this problem. We really need to also see, look at a systemic change. We we, we need to see a transformations in the way we produce energy, in the way, in the way we do transport, and in, in the way we produce or, or we use agriculture to produce the food or the, or the fiber that we need. And what is, what is important here as well, or an important lesson learned, is that after the lockdowns, we have also seen emissions ra- rise immediately again. And of course, that is also expected. Because the cars that we are driving are still the same cars. So they have not changed. We have not transformed our society. We just kind of shut it down for a while. So it really shows that these lockdowns, it shows on the one hand that when society is is aware and accepts the urgency of a situation, we can act quite rapidly and quite drastically. But it also shows that the measures implemented for, for the COVID lockdowns are not those that will provide a solution to uh, climate change. And another aspect that we looked at uh, was the, the recovery funding that, that many countries put forward or the recovery funds to, to restart their economies when after, after they received a very strong dip because of those corona or COVID lockdowns. And what we showed there is that uh, compared to the investments that are needed to shift our economies globally, onto one of the most stringent low-carbon pathways, those that limit warming to 1.5. The finance needed to do that is an order of magnitude smaller than the the money put forward to deal with the economic fallout of the, the, the COVID lockdowns. And of course, that money that is there for, for the economic recovery is not, only, is not only for infrastructure investments, it's also to support to support businesses, to to support families uh, and communities in dealing with the loss of income. But it shows the importance of using that that resource in a smart way, in one that also looks into the future and and has a long-term perspective of where we want to go with our society. For example, by stimulating those companies that can contribute to a low-carbon transformation or only support polluting companies if they put in place a plan to deal with their pollution over the next years and transform to a less polluting uh, business model. Exactly. It's interesting that we wouldn't require as much investment uh, when you compare it to what was uh, required and available for COVID. And then you think about the death toll to, say, air pollution annually, they say, being over 8 million. So it, it certainly dwarfs the um, urgency, in, in fact, the urgency and the death toll to, to COVID. So I, I'm hopeful that we can make those rapid decisions if 
it's impressed upon enough people uh, that we really need to. There's the hopeful and then there's the kind of uh, pessimistic analysis. But I've heard from some who say we can reach 100% renewable energy in a decade. I don't know what your feelings are on that. What do you feel uh, a realistic, um, tar- achievable target is and how close are we? Are we on track? It's, it's a really difficult question because the realism of a target is, is not something that can be really objectively measured. I, I, I heard a, a colleague of mine give the example, how realistic is it that I will go for a run tomorrow? Well, that really depends on whether I decide whether I want to go for a run tomorrow in the cold here in England. And this, the same is very often true for the targets we set. Of course, there are limits to how fast we can scale technologies and so on. And well, transforming our entire global energy system within a, within a deck sounds very challenging. But anything beyond that really depends on how focused we are and how, how many clear, dedicated decisions we make to, towards making this transformation happen. I think it's good to keep in mind how this perception of what is possible, realistic or feasible really shifts over time. Before Paris, so before 2015, there was very little talk in the developed, in developed countries about limiting warming to 1.5. At that point, it was limiting warming to 2 degrees, and that was a huge challenge. Over the past five years, or and after Paris, 1.5 came into the in, in picture. So suddenly, limiting warming to 1.5 was possible as an idea, but still all targets and pledges and promises were still pointing very much in a different direction. Just two years ago, having a net zero target of China, India, Saudi Arabia was just unthought of. Today, these countries have net zero targets. They still need to be achieved, as are all the other net zero targets of all the other countries. But the shift in perception, the shift in in, in context is immense. And so it is, I think, Uh, that plays a really important role in deciding what is realistic. If everybody thinks about it and if everybody moves already in the right direction, lots of things can can happen and can be achieved in quite short time periods. Well, I believe so. I certainly hope so. I do know that there's others, some people who are putting... I guess governments putting contingency plans in place, strengthening their border walls, you know, not feeling well, if we don't get to net zero, we have to guard our resources for ourselves. I don't know what your thoughts are on that. It it is somehow, it's it's an understandable reaction, but not one that I would, or, or, or actually it's the exact opposite of what we need today. We know that to successfully manage this global transformation, we need collaboration, we need the exchange of ideas, we need the transfer of technologies, we need to share capacities. The closed borders are the exact opposite of what is needed. So actually, contrary to what those countries thinks, think and, and that they are protecting themselves, they're actually undermining their long-term term security by undermining this, uh, this global transformation that needs to happen. And that will only be successful if, if everybody or, or the entire planet and, and all countries come along. Exactly. You know, so some countries are more fortunate than others in terms of their resources, but no country has everything. And so we need, we need to share it so that we can um, 
our benefit. And I'm just wondering, closing, because you really, uh, as much as you're a researcher, there's a big, you know, ethical element of what you do. I'm wondering where your love and respect of nature came from. Well, I've, nature has always been a part of my of my life. I'm I'm an avid uh, mountaineer. And it's, yeah, it's, it's one of the key inspirations for, for, for what I do. And in a way, my, the key moment when I, when I got interested in climate change and when actually the, the, the issue of climate change connected to longstanding kind of fascination and, 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 and respect for nature was when I was working in development cooperation in Africa. I, I worked there for three years. And during that time, I was really made aware of how the natural environment was changing, how it deeply affects uh, society and, and, so, and the vulnerable societies there in, in Africa. And also how I was working in Rwanda, who was which was struggling with a strong deforestation problem there, how also the deterioration of that natural world resulted in many knock-on problems and, 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 and knock-on challenges for society, including erosion, the disappearance of, of fertile soils, the, the, the re reduction of water availability, and so on. Just already irrespective and, and, and separate of the, the loss of biodiversity and of, of natural habitat in itself. And that really was one of the motivations for me to, and the inspirations to start to work on, on solutions towards this, this one of the largest societal challenges of this century. Yes, and as we think about the future and the kind of world we're leaving for the next generation, and you reflect upon the teachers and the life lessons that were important to you, you know, what would you like young people to know, preserve and remember? One of the key lessons that I learned, and it's not necessarily one individual teacher, but it was really the experience of and the humbling experience of working with extremely poor and extremely vulnerable populations. It is that every that we are, we are we are living on a very precious planet, and we also live on a very vulnerable planet. We might perceive this as being something that that cannot be disturbed, that our our actions don't affect the whole, but ultimately our actions play a really important role. And, and, and our actions make a big difference, starting from the people around us to the planet on which we live. And I think that is one of the a key empowering thought and, and perspective that has helped me not only be motivated in find the motivation in what I do, but also prioritize the things that I think are important for life and, and, and my time and resources too. Well, we're so um, grateful uh, that you are dedicating your time and resources and you really uh, helping us increase our understanding and, and just work towards that global cooperation, the eventual 100% renewable net zero targets. Uh, so thank you, Yuri Rogel and the Grantham Institute in Climate Science and Policy at the Center for Environmental Policy at Imperial College London for your work that has had exceptional impact on international 
international climate policy and helping us envision climate change scenarios uh, to change the global conversation. Everything is connected, as you say, and what we do in this world comes back to affect us. We all live on one planet we call home. I thank you for your devotion to the ecosystems we're dependent on and for adding your voice to One Planet Podcast. Thank you for having me. One Planet Podcast is produced by The Creative Process. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk with the participation of collaborating universities and students. The associate interview producer on this podcast was Triel Alstead. Digital media coordinator is Phoebe Browis. Theme music is written and performed by Juan Sanchez. We hope you've enjoyed listening to this program. If you'd like to get involved in One Planet Podcast and be part of the climate change solution, just drop us a line at our email, team at oneplanetpodcast.org. Thank you for listening.